Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 292, New versus Old Beginning, Two Interpretations of John 1. I was invited recently to come on a YouTube channel hosted by our friend Sam to discuss interpreting John 1 with my friend Bill Schlegel, host of the One God Report podcast. You see, Bill has arrived at what in previous episodes of this podcast we've called a Socinian interpretation of the prologue to the fourth gospel. At this point, I'm pretty against that interpretation. I'm convinced that there's a better way to read John 1. In this long conversation, I go into more detail than I have thus far about my interpretation and what I think is the proper background for this very strange and difficult New Testament passage. If you want to know more about the host, I'll put a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can find his YouTube channel and even find a video in which he discusses his own religious background. It's very interesting. The material in this week's episode will also be released on Bill Schlegel's podcast, The One God Report, as well as on Sam's YouTube channel, which is called Transfigured. I recommend checking out both of these sources. Bills for discussion of passages which Trinitarians often believe support their case, and Sam's channel for wide-ranging, interesting, penetrating discussions with a variety of Christians who have a variety of theological perspectives. Over then to Sam. I am here with uh, Dale Tuggy and Bill Schlegel. We're here to talk about the prologue of John. This is a topic that biblical Unitarians or One God believers often get asked about, and this is also a topic that seems to have had a certain amount of fresh energy given to it recently in sort of biblical Unitarian land and in Facebook groups or in podcasts and stuff like that. Um, So I'll introduce my guests. Um, Dale Tuggy is a philosopher, I would say probably the leading philosopher in biblical Unitarian land. He has a PhD from Brown. He's been a professor, and he also wrote the Stanford Encyclopedia article on the Trinity. And the Stanford Encyclopedia is sort of like Wikipedia, but for experts. And so uh, it's quite an honor to be asked to write the entry, especially on an important topic. And also, of course, Dale has a podcast called Trinities, which I highly recommend. Uh, I listen to it regularly. It, It has a lot of great information. Bill Schlegel, you were previously a professor at Masters uh, Seminary. Um, yeah, it's the, Masters the University, University College part, yep. You taught in sort of the exchange or the abroad program in Israel, right? That's right. And you did that for decades, and I'll probably link this in the description. You can find Bill and his wife's testimony on sort of what happened when you transitioned from Trinitarianism to believing in one God. That's quite a testimony. I won't go into all the details now. But uh, the short story is, is they didn't treat you in a very Christ-like way, in my opinion, but you handled it in a Christ-like way. And so now you've been uh, hosting the One God Report, which is another podcast, and it does a great job sort of delving into what you might say are question texts or problem texts that, that Trinitarians often point to, to to support a Trinitarian view that biblical Unitarians often get asked about. And so there's a, a lot of great resources there. And 
and you have a blog, both of you have blogs that sort of match your podcasts. So we're here to talk about the prologue of John. Both of you, I, I don't think you really have a theological difference, really. It's, I would just uh, understand it as an interpretation difference on how to understand the prologue of John. You know, showing my cards at the beginning, I kind of lean towards Dale, but I'm open-minded and curious to hear more about what Bill has to say, and I hope we can have a really good discussion. So with that, um, I think I'll pass it to Dale first and then Bill second to sort of just give a high-level overview of how you understand the prologue. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Thanks for having us. And uh, it's an honor to be here and discuss this with Bill. I'm a big fan of Bill's. And you should definitely check out that testimony video that Sam mentioned. It's, it's really rich, encouraging testimony. Maybe one way to explain my view would be just to kind of read through it and kind of paraphrase what I think it's saying, since it's short enough. Maybe that would just take three minutes or something or five minutes. I've wondered about this passage for quite a long time. I used to just think this was the wonderful proof text for the deity of Christ and the eternity of Christ. But after a lot of study, I'm actually kind of amazed that Trinitarians think this is their silver bullet, because there's nothing about the Trinity here. It's not mentioned, and it doesn't actually say that the Word was eternal, and doesn't actually say that the Word was Jesus. There's no incarnation theory here as I read it, or as Bill reads it. So my endeavor in, I guess, probably about 20 years in trying to figure out this passage is what would it have meant in the first century when it was written? You know, I know what Athanasius wants me to think about it and the, uh, the Arians and the Nicenes in the fourth century, but like what would it have meant in the first century if this was written in 68 or 95 or some year like that? So it starts off, this is the new revised standard. In the beginning was the word and in the beginning, it could mean various things, but um, I think since it starts to talk about creation, you're supposed to think Genesis 1. And this Word of God we're familiar with from the Old Testament because it says in a couple of places that God creates all things through His Word, and He creates in Genesis by speaking. So, in the beginning, the Word is already there. The Word was with God, and also the Word was God. My understanding is that the author is telling you there that the word actually isn't somebody else. But after he tells you that, that it's just God himself, then he merrily goes on personifying, just like wisdom is personified in Proverbs 8. So he, that's the word, was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. Right, so God's word is spoken of as a light to our path, you know, the light that all people need in the Old Testament. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then we weirdly skip ahead to John the Baptist, I guess just because he's eager to show that Jesus is far superior to John the Baptist. And what he's driving at is that Jesus is the embodiment of God's eternal word. So there was a man sent by God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. And this is God's word that's coming into the world in the man Jesus. And then he was in the world. It switches back to a masculine pronoun here because I take it's going back to the subject of the word, the logos. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. 
he came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him. So I understand the people of the word to be the Jews, the people who had received God's word. And yet, you know, they keep rejecting this message to them, at least the mass of them do. But to all who received him, again, God's word, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God, who were born not of the blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. I'll stop it there. It goes back to John basically saying that uh, even though Jesus comes after John, Jesus has now surpassed John because Jesus was always of greater rank than John. So that's basically how I read it. Cool. And so let's see here. I often call that the sort of personified logos soft incarnation view is a way that I'll sometimes express that when I'm describing it. But it's also sort of, you know, we might call it the Genesis beginning or something like that, just sort of to clarify it or give it a shorthand. I don't know if you have a a different sort of pet name for, for describing it. No, I don't have a name for it. I just, the term incarnation has become so loaded by becoming a a technical term of Catholic theology that I probably wouldn't call it that, or I'd call it non-literal incarnation. Mm -hmm. The word of God comes to a prophet and the prophet brings it and God gives his word to prophets. But, you know, this is a more serious thing. God's word is, is living in this one. He has become flesh in this one. It's like the word itself is living among us. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a way of exalting him as greater than even the greatest prophet of the time. And I kind of wonder if he's also trying to um, one up some kind of early Gnostic types, Docetic types who would have thought maybe Jesus is some kind of heavenly being that's just appearing like a human. He came from the Pleroma or something, and he's some kind of eon. And it's like, well, I'll do you one better than that. You know, the wisdom that was with God at the very foundation of the world, that is what has come to us in this man. So without introducing any extra heavenly characters, it's kind of making him, right? This is the word of the most high God. It's making the word older and greater than whatever these heavenly beings are supposed to be. But that's just a pure speculation on my part. I can't really Mm -hmm. establish that. Sure. Bill, do you want to give us sort of a high-level overview flyover of of your interpretation? Sure, absolutely. Thanks, Sam, for having us on, and Dale for a good discussion, I'm sure, coming up. As uh, you know, we're buddies. We live nearby each other, go to the same congregation. So I appreciate Dale and his podcast and all the things he's doing. And I think this will be a nice discussion in a good spirit. I think my view could be called the new beginning or the new creation view. That is that the word beginning, although it is a allusion to the book of Genesis, John is actually not describing the creation of rocks and trees and stars and planets, but he is describing what the scriptures look for or have predicted. And now in the, New T- in the Old Testament, they predict, like in the book of Isaiah, I can give you a handful of scriptures on the Lord saying, I'm going to make all things new. So the expectation of the Jewish people is that when Messiah comes, there would be the renewal. The new creation idea is not a demolition of the material physical universe and then a recreation of that again, but it's rather a renewal of the created universe 
confirming that indeed what God made in the book of Genesis is good. Right? God said, it's good. Everything is good. Creation is good. Man was made to live on earth. And yes, with the fall, there is a futility curse. might want to call it that. Death has come in. Sin has entered and through sin, death. But God didn't leave mankind to that futility and to that destruction. Rather, he promised a renewal, a recreation. And we can see that expectation, that hope in the history of Israel in the, in the Old Testament. And we see in the New Testament, I believe, the author saying, hey, it's here. Jesus is the new creation. This is it. And that's what John is describing here uh, when he starts out in the introduction to his book. So, yes, there's a, a glance at creation with the first couple words. It's an illusion, but we don't really see creation language in the Gospel of John. We'll get to that. There's no word for create. Okay, The main word for create that the Septuagint used in the Greek, but even the Hebrew equivalents are not there. Either the word for make or create, they're not in the, they're not in the prologue. So I would suggest that there are really two issues of the prologue of John's gospel, which I'll kind of focus my comments on here tonight. And I think Dale would would agree with this, and if he doesn't, he can say. But the two issues are really, is the word in the beginning, is it a direct reference to the Genesis creation? Is John in the gospel, in the prologue, describing the Genesis creation? Or is it, like I just said, is an illusion? Is Is he saying, hey, look, the God who made everything as described in the book of Genesis, is the same one who's at work now in the life of Jesus Christ. So that's the main question. Is the beginning in John 1 a direct reference to the Genesis creation? The second issue would be, is the logos, that's the Greek word for word, or that which is being described in verses 1 through 13, is this a person? Okay, and I say up to verse 13 because I think Dale just mentioned, and I've heard him say before, that with verse 14, he sees the person of Jesus there. Okay, the word was flesh. Well, the word became flesh, he said, uh, the translation he read. Okay, so he sees that's the person Jesus. So is there a person described in verses 1 through 13? That would be the second issue. In a lot of ways, my job tonight, or this, this, this discussion would be, one, to show that in the beginning is not a direct reference to the Genesis creation, and that, yes, there is a person being described in verses 1 through 13. On these two issues, beginning with the Logos theories of the second century AD, and Dale knows very well, and I've learned it from him, you can listen to our, our recent podcast, how he described that these Gentile Greek philosophical thinkers of the second century AD saw this word Logos, and they're going to jump on it, and they're going to take that and adapt the Greek idea of a secondary God and say, oh, see, Jesus is that. Well, beginning with those guys and then leading up to traditional Christianity, which has come to believe in some kind of a pre-incarnate son, an eternal son, or a second God person involved in the Genesis creation. Well, Dale and I agree that there's no second God person described in John 1.1, who is present at the Genesis creation, creating with Jehovah God. Okay, this is something that I totally agree with him on. There's not another person back there in Genesis chapter 1 creating. Now, Dale rejects number two, which I mentioned above, claiming that there's not another person described in John 1, 1 through 13. I reject point number one that I described above, that John 1, 1, 14 directly describes the Genesis creation. Rather, I believe that John 1 is about that new beginning, that new creation that God did through Jesus. So for me, like I said, my job would be to show that the beginning in John 1, 1 is not a direct reference to Genesis. 
and to suggest or show that a person is being described in the first 13 verses of John. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Mr. Schlegel explains why he believes the beginning mentioned here is not the time of the Genesis creation. In the beginning, in RK, when do you think we're talking about and what sort of support would you give for that? The first thing is I would look in the book of John, the gospel of John, to see how else the phrase is used. The term the beginning, not in the beginning, but the term the beginning is used five other times in the gospel of John. And none of those times is referred to the Genesis creation. If I can read a couple of them, John 6.65, the author of the gospel says, for Jesus knew from the beginning, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Or John Mm -hmm. 8, 25, they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. These are references to the beginning, and they are a reference to his ministry, to the ministry of Jesus. In John 16, 4, Jesus said, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, speaking to his apostles. He was with them from the beginning. And he tells the apostles in 1527, you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So I see the use of the beginning by the same author, the same book, to mean the beginning of Jesus's life and ministry. And this is a good reason to understand that the phrase the beginning in the first verse of of the gospel, right? John 1, 1, in the beginning is a reference likewise to the beginning of the life and ministry of Jesus. Or to put it another way, to interpret the beginning in John 1.1 as a reference to the Genesis creation, to me, contradicts how John uses the phrase in all the other places in his gospel. He doesn't use it that way. So with all this other immediate contextual evidence in the gospel of John, I think it's unreasonable, even exegetically a failure, to interpret the beginning of John 1.1 as describing directly the Genesis creation. Rather, the beginning in John 1.1 while he shamelessly and intentionally echoes Genesis, right? Absolutely. Somebody, I think, thinks I said, I don't think there's any Genesis language in in John's prologue. No, absolutely not. He's intentionally using some language of the Genesis creation, not not all of it. And he's he's missing some of the key languages. We can get key words. We can get to it as we go along. But he's shamelessly echoing Genesis because this is the new beginning, the new creation of God, the life and ministry of Jesus the Messiah. And then I would look at the use of the phrase, the beginning, in the epistles of John, in the other Johannine literature, the epistles of John. And First John 1, the first epistle of John, which starts out, that which was from the beginning. He's referring to things that people heard, that the people touched and they saw in the A.D. first century. And he also says concerning the word, okay, that's the logos, of life. Now, I will say this. 
I don't necessarily make a total one-to-one equivalent with the Word and Jesus. I think, yes, basically the Word in John's prologue is Jesus, but it does have a rich background, right? The Word of God especially is how God and what God communicates with man. This is another reason why I would suggest that the prologue is about Jesus and it's not about the Genesis creation. If you look in Hebrew and in and Greek too, you can look for the word logos in the Greek Septuagint or the word devar, which is Hebrew word. It's far away from the Genesis creation account. The word devar is not in the Genesis creation account. Actually, the word in the singular does not occur ever in the book of Genesis, the word devar. Never does the singular occur in Genesis. It occurs three times in the plural, and it's always like the words. The first time is with Lamech. I believe it's chapter four of Genesis when he says, oh, wives, listen to the words of Lamech, okay? That's the first time you're going to get words in the book of Genesis. So the same thing with the the Septuagint. You're not going to find the word logos connected with the book of Genesis in the creation account. It's just not there, okay? What I believe happened is those Greek philosophers that we all know so much about, or I know less about than you guys, these guys saw this word logos in the Gospel of John, and man, they jumped on it like cats on a mouse. Right? I they think we all oh, might agree with that, yeah. <laughs> we're going to take that word, and we're going to fit that into this Greek system of some pre-existent being that's back there involved in the creation of the universe. Well, I think if you're a Jew, thinking like a Hebraic Jew, not um, so many Jews now think like Westerners too, but within the first three words of the Gospel of John, you would know that the author is not talking about the creation in Genesis. In the beginning, you say, ah, maybe Genesis was the word, Uh uh-uh, bingo. You see, the Jews, I mean, I'm talking about the real religious ones, okay, that haven't been so influenced by Western thought. Everything they interpret on is a lot is involved in semantics. You try to tell a Jew that the logos is what's involved in creation, he will laugh at you because it's not in the book of Genesis. This is a Greek idea that the logos is involved in creation. A Jew reading this book is going to say, ah, no, this is not Genesis. In the beginning, in Genesis, created Elohim, created God. Word of God, even if you want to say it's uh, somehow his statement and so forth, does not proceed God. God is first, okay? You cannot say in the beginning, God. If you do, yeah, you're kind of alluding to creation, but you're not talking about the Genesis creation. Can I jump in with a few points here? Yeah, what would you say in response to that, Dale? Uh, well, I have a couple of disagreements with, with what Bill's saying, and it's, it's partly methodological. So, I mean, he's doing the right thing. If we're wondering what this word, what this phrase NRK means, you want to see how does the very same author use it. Of course, that's one of a couple of layers. Then you also want to see what other contemporary authors or other authors kind of immediately prior to that would use it. That I completely agree with. But these statistics about, uh, you know, he uses the word to mean this 17 times, therefore he must mean the same thing this time. That's a fallacy because it's all context dependent, right? This context could be, do, could be different than those 17 other contexts. Did I say that? Well, well you said it was a contradiction the- for John to use the word uh, to mean the beginning of mm, something, the Christian era, but then no, use it for the that. Genesis creation here. 
I don't think I said contradiction. I would mm -hmm. say it's not such good exegesis. But it's un it's unlikely, maybe you would say, and and that some of the the other uses of RK in in the other Johannine works would yeah would lead yeah because towards I do think Christian it's an illusion. Beginning. I think it's an illusion, right? One other point: I don't agree that John never uses it for the beginning of as in the time of creation, because that's how I understand First John one. We declare to you what was from the beginning, and that turns out to be the word of life that was with the Father. So I take that the same way. About Genesis 1 not using the word word, devar, or logos in Greek, sure, but God does create by speaking. The real background for this passage on my interpretation is really the wisdom literature. That does use the word word, and it kind of equates it with the concept of wisdom, as we'll discuss. And some of that, that Greek intertestamental stuff, like Wisdom of Solomon and some of those other things, they'll use the word logos, right? Not rhema or sophia or something in terms of creation. Typically, yeah. And there's this, there are these traditions that are in intertestamental Jewish times of talking about God by talking about the Word of God. And it seems that they want to kind of put a barrier between God and creation. Whether that word is a being or whether it's just a manifestation of God or something or power of God, Philo of Alexandria says, is mm -hmm. it's a mud pit of a topic. Fi yeah, Philo of Alexandria might be a, a rabbit a trail yeah, that we might, might avoid. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'd interrupt so, with that too by saying wisdom is not in the Gospel of John. It's not in the prologue. It's not in the Gospel of John. So I think that's it's not the best way to view this book. Rather, I think it's better to look at the use of the word logos in the Gospel of John. We talked about 1 John. We're interpreting 1 John differently. I see 1 John, and I did start to kind of get off a little bit because in 1 John, he does say concerning the word of life. So yes, I do see in other places where in the scripture, the idea of the word of God, it's not it's not a one-to-one -one equivalent with Jesus, but I, I think that John is, is really saying, look, at the kind of the same way that Hebrews chapter 1 introduces his book, where he says, in many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. So yes, it's the epitome of God's communication to mankind is the person, Jesus Christ. And that's the way as well, I, I interpret John, First John at the epistle, where he says, look, it's that which we have touched, that which we have seen with our eyes and our ears have heard concerning the word of life. He's concerning the about, word of life, yes. yes not right. and not so the word talking, itself, things yes. about the word. But he's talking about Jesus Christ there. He knows it's, it's, it's mm -hmm. epitomized in Jesus Christ. It's not only limited, because you can see in the book of Acts, for instance, where the word of God continued to spread. It's the message of who Jesus is, of what God is doing for mankind through Jesus. But it's still, I think, in John's mind, that's epitomized in Jesus Christ. Like he says in the book of Revelation, the name by which Jesus is called in the book of Revelation is the Word of God. I strayed a little bit because we kind of got on that by speaking about the beginning. And I still would kind of come back to that because, like I say, it's, it's one of my two main jobs, in a sense, at least to suggest that the beginning is not a direct reference to creation, rather just an illusion. Because you can see these same usages 
of the beginning in other New Testament books, we started to get into the epistles of John. And in the Johannine literature, he uses the word the beginning to reference to the ministry of Jesus. He'll say things like, beloved, I write you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. And then he, he says it over and over again, mm-hmm. really, some five times in Second in John. Yeah, but as you point out in your podcast, you have a nice podcast, Bill, where you discuss NRK. And yeah, there are a number of examples where it refers to like the beginning of the Christian era or something like that. But then there are, there are even New Testament examples where it doesn't. It's just a relative term. You know, whatever the subject matter is, I could say um, we mentioned your testimony video at the beginning. It's not a technical term that refers to to any one thing. It's just totally relative to the subject matter. I agree with mm-hmm. you 100%. Right? So, and, so Bill, I'll just, I'll just finish up because I think the subject matter of the Gospel of John is the ministry of Jesus, and that's how it's used. We absolutely need to interpret the word in this context. Yes, but there's creation talk farther down in the passage that I don't understand how your, right. your interpretation yeah, we'll get, can we'll make get sense. We'll get to that. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Sam asks Bill about this objection to his interpretation. Verse 3 says, you know, all things came into being through him, him presumably being the Logos, and without him not one thing came into being. And then a little bit later uh, in 10, you know, he was in the world and the world came into being through him. It's interesting that you point out that it's not the same words as like create and stuff like that, but it certainly sounds like creation. And I would even say, you know, like, why would he go to all things came through him and there isn't a thing that has come into being without him, right? That strong, you know, say the positive and negate the negative. To me, I feel like I don't understand why he would be doing that unless he was talking sort of about all things, including even rocks and moons and, and planets and stuff. Mm-hmm. You can go to verse three. It might be nice if we kind of look at one and two as well. But yeah, we'll, we'll probably three. we'll come back to verse one. I I have a very strong question about verse one for you mm-hmm. still hanging, but let's do creation while while we're still uh, talking about it. Let me back up for just a second to verse two. We'll, I'll come to th- verse three, but look at how verse two starts out. This one was in the beginning. Yes, it's a it could be interpreted as a neuter, but I I see that as a direct contrast to. John the Baptist, okay? And one of the things we see in this prologue is the very quick introduction of the man, John the Baptist. He plays a significant role in the prologue. He's in verses six to eight. He's in verse 15. And he's really from verse 19 of chapter one all the way through 34 or so. It's a significant role. And this is one of the things I see the writer doing is, I believe the writer was probably an apostle of John the Baptist. And he clarifies the relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist. 
And it was a big question in the time. See, John the Baptist, we know from secular authors, some Josephus, that John the Baptist had a huge following, a huge following. So mm -hmm. many people followed John the Baptist that Herod Antipas, the governor of Galilee, was afraid of John for political reasons. He thought he could start an uprising against him. So John mm -hmm. the Baptist had a huge following, and people were wondering if he was the Messiah, as we see in this, the rest of this chapter, in chapter one of John. And part of the role of the author is to say, look at John the Baptist came and testified to this one who was the real light. And that's what the author wants to start off by saying. And even in verse two, when he says, this one was in the beginning of God, and that's a contrast with verse seven, this one, it's actually the same word in, in the Greek. This one came for a testimony that's referring to John the Baptist. And in one verse 15, it, in the prologue, it's again, John, look at John bears witness and cries out about Jesus. This one was he of whom I said, he is greater than I, he comes before me, etc. Okay. So I see in the prologue, the participation of John, another good evidence that the context, as we just de described, that you have to take the word the beginning in the context, the context here is the person and ministry of Jesus. And John the Baptist is an essential aspect of the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Now in verse three, I think part of our problem is some of the translations. Again, I, there is no creation word in here. Some translations make it look like it's creation. Like I think some will even say everything was created through him. Without him was not anything created that was made. It's not really fair to translate it that way. We have the word, first of all, we only have the word all here. So whatever it is, is it everything in, in the universe? Very unlikely. This word all, is used three more times in the prologue. And in each case, it refers to people. Look at 1-7, that all might believe through him. 1-9, he gives light to all men. 1-16, from his fullness have we all received. So the first thing I would note is, in the very same prologue, this word is not the created physical world. I believe it's really talking about especially people, but probably not only. I think it means as well the community of people, everything that happened in the life of Jesus. But a, a big part of what's in the author's mind, I believe, is the things that happen with the life of Jesus are things like this. A covenant community of people being called out. All those that believe in him are going to be born of God, as he says in verses 12 and 13. The next age comes about through Jesus. All things. What do we would, see? would you be comfortable translating it everyone uh, if it said everyone came into being through him and without him no one has come that has come into being or some, something thereabouts? Or would you say that's too far? I think people are a big part of it, but I think there's probably more to it because you can see the parallels in the other New Testament literature, like in places uh, like in uh, Colossians, where mm -hmm. he says, through him all have been made. And then he lists the things, principalities, powers, authorities, etc. First Corinthians 8, verse 6 is another good example. We have one God, the Father, who all things are from him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through him are all oh, things. Yeah. Okay? So you, see, you have these same kinds of intertextual parallels where the author sees that the new, I believe it's really, it's the next age. It's coming through Jesus Christ. And that includes its people, spiritual blessings, everything, a kingdom, That's all, all richness, mm -hmm. all of God's, you know, stored up plan, you know, yep. that all, all of those sorts of things. 
getting bundled together in, the, yep. in this sort of rich word all. It, yep. And another thing about this is, is this verb that's translated, created through and all these things. It's simply the word, again, if I'm pronouncing it right. But to me, and this as well is an allusion to creation because it's the it's a word that happens a lot in creation. And I kind of know it well because I see which word the Greek translators were translating from in Hebrew. And I, I know Hebrew better than I know Greek. So I get an idea what those Greek translators were thinking when they use this word. And it's the word, God said, let there be light. And there was. Okay, it's that word. And there was. Now, what does that mean? It was created. Mm, not really. Okay. It came to be. It happened. This word has a wide range of semantic uh, meanings. Mm-hmm. In 1.6, for instance, there was a man sent from God. It's the same word. Why yeah. translate it was in verse 6 and created in verse 3? It's the same word in verse 17. The law was given through Moses, grace and truth, came through, that's the word right there, Jesus Christ. It was. And sure. see, the author is seeing that Jesus so Christ is the channel through everything that next age is coming through him, just as everything going on right now came through Adam. One so man. it's like it's like all of it is through him and nothing is not from him or something like that. I, I want to give mm-hmm. I want to give Dale a little bit of chance to talk. So Dale, if I had a hard question for you and this is a question that's been posed to me and I don't feel like I have a great answer is that John seems to have a lot of themes that he sort of weaves throughout the gospel like light and life. And these things are being bundled up with logos or word here in the first couple verses. And it seems very clear, like Jesus says, I am the light of the world, or I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that there's a pretty strong identity mm-hmm. between Jesus and those words. Obviously, he's using those words because they have a meaning to them, and they have symbolic richness. But it seems like Word and Jesus seem more tightly packed together than sort of fits a clean break between word as kind of divine attribute and then Jesus. The clean divide between verse 13 and 14 doesn't always seem to fit so well. So I I was hoping if you could address that. I'm not sure there is a clean divide between 10 through 13 and 14 because Although on my reading, it's still talking about the BC career of God's word. I think he's intentionally making it sound like Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so he's kind of foreshadowing the character that's about to jump onto the stage in verse 14. But yeah, about in the word was life, the light of all people, light shines in the darkness. John was not the light. He came to testify to the light. I mean, Jesus is the light of the world because he has God's word in him, I take it. And yeah, Bill's bringing up a lot of uh, facts about word choices and so on. And these are all relevant, but I don't think that any of them are decisive. But while we're talking about undeniable facts, two relevant facts, I think, are that the author of the fourth gospel pointedly does not call Jesus the word in the whole rest of the book. And I think the reason he does that is because that would ruin the personification And that would make you think that Jesus wasn't a man. It would make you think Jesus was some kind of deity or angel or something. So he doesn't do it. Now, there's nothing wrong with so doing, because if God's word is preeminently in this man, why not call him the word of God? But John doesn't do it. The other thing he does, and I'm assuming that the same author is the author of 1 John. In 1 John, he doesn't personify the word. 
he pointedly makes sure he only uses uh, neuter and feminine pronouns. And then he calls it the word of life, just just to sort of mix things up. It looks like he's trying to correct people who think the word is the same person as the man Jesus. Mm -hmm. Do you take it that first John came after the gospel and maybe that the author had some corrective uh, purposes in mind? Yeah, because, I mean, we know the Gnostics were running as wild with this the second they got it. Mm -hmm. These mythological mindset kind of people, they make life and light different beings, and uh, the Word is a being. And really, to me, the whole prologue up until 14, it mentions John and it mentions God. Those are the two persons mentioned. And the Mm -hmm. Word is a quasi, it's a pseudo-person because it's a personification you can't get the right interpretation of this to me without realizing that it's just packed full of material that people would recognize as being in the wisdom genre, mm-hmm. talking about God's wisdom and how that relates to creation. So just to take one example, Sam, I think you mentioned the book called Wisdom or the Wisdom of Solomon. This is one of those deuterocanonical books that's in the Catholic and Orthodox Bibles that's not in the Protestant Bibles. It was written maybe sometime first century BC and uh, chapter nine in wisdom, it's supposed to be Solomon. Of course, it's, it's not really Solomon. It's way too late to be a book by Solomon, but Solomon's praying, O God of my ancestors and Lord of mercy, who have made all things by your word and by your wisdom have formed humankind to have dominion over the creatures you have made a little bit farther down. He says, give me the wisdom that sits by your throne. Okay, so notice that wisdom is being strongly personified here, but also notice up up before there seems to be kind of a rough equation of word and wisdom. The Greek word logos lent itself to this. The Stoics discussed this, but it wasn't just property of the Stoics. This was common knowledge that logos could mean the thought, and it could also mean the word that expresses the thought. Mm-hmm. It comes to be associated with God's wisdom. Another example of that is in the book called Sirach, chapter 24. This is in the vein of Proverbs 8, where wisdom is bragging about herself. Sirach 24, 3, I came forth from the mouth of the Most High and covered the earth like a mist. Okay, but if wisdom came forth from the mouth of the Most High, that makes her God's word. She says, I dwell in the highest heavens, you know, vivid personification. It's like she lives in God's neighborhood. Over every people and nation, I have held sway. Uh, Before the ages, in the beginning, he created me. It's common to talk about wisdom being NRK. This is even in Proverbs 8. Although originally, wisdom kind of is talked about like she's the first thing God made. That wouldn't literally make any sense, right? Because if she's... If she's also God's wisdom, God couldn't create God's wisdom. But -hmm. I think the point is just that wisdom is is older than the hills. It's older than the earth and sky. And even at creation, it was already around. And it's kind of helping God. And there are other passages that talk about God's creation as involving God's wisdom. So these are things that I think the audience would have picked up on. And part of the reason why I think they would have taken it to be Genesis creation and not new creation. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I raise the question of why, if the word here is Jesus, he's called God in the first verse. 
I just don't see enough here to make me think new creation. And verse 10 doesn't make sense to me on the new creation reading. But also, it's problematic to me that the word is called God, because as Bill and I, I'm sure, agree, that's not a normal term for Jesus. So if you say the word is Jesus, okay, but it it just said God was the word right in the first verse here. So Mm. a couple of barriers to me accepting his interpretation would be a good understanding of why Jesus is being called God at the outset. And then what does it mean to say that he's in the world and the world came into being or just was through him? Like the world wasn't through Jesus, the man. Right. So, Bill, how would you answer that? That was the question that I alluded to about verse 1. And the word was God. There are a couple different ways that you can translate that. How do you understand the word was God at the end of verse 1? I think probably in a lot of ways, Dale and I would agree with this on understanding that John 1.1c, the word was God. Let maybe just back up for one second and look at the phrase, and the word was with God. That phrase as well... I would suggest that it shows that whoever is being discussed here is a person. Because when you look at this phrase, the Greek phrase, it's an action or a a situation where another person is always involved in their relationship to God. A couple of good examples would be in Exodus 4.16 of the relationship of the way that the uh, Greek translated the phrase that Moses would be God It's actually that Moses would be toward God in the sense of a like almost a mediatorial role. And it's used as well in the book of Hebrews, the high priest in things relating to God. It's this phrase, prostantheon, toward God. And I would suggest that verse 1 and verse 18, the end of the prologue, are somewhat related. It's almost an inclusio where in verse 18 we have, I believe, the unique son is in the bosom with the father. He has made him known. It's kind of the same thing that's going on with the first verse in that we have God communicating to mankind through this person, Jesus Christ. And that's how I would look at the statement that, and the word was God. We all know that the word God doesn't have the definite article on there. So it it makes you think a little bit, is this a one-to-one equivalence? Is this a adjectival kind of a quality of who the word is? But I think, again, I would just go back, and I think we can understand it by looking at the book of Hebrews, ironically enough, because it starts out in a very similar way, that in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. So the word is God's word. It's God that work. He's making a statement. A lot of that statement is, folks, the new age resurrection from the dead is in this one. It's a promise of redemption in this one. As First John says, we know his commandment is eternal life. This book ends up with Jesus Christ being resurrected from the dead. That's God's word. That's God's promise, if you want to say, to us. Jesus Christ is God's promise to us. We can see in the life and ministry of who Jesus is, this is God. Maybe you could say, here's a little bit of a parallel. Israelites cross the Red Sea. One Jewish guy turns to another one as the waters rush back and wash up the Egyptian army. And the the guy turns to his friend and says, that was God, right? So you can understand what it means. It means that's God at work. So the word, 
I see the person Jesus Christ is God at work. It's God's promise to us. It's God's communication to us. It's God's statement to us. Everything about Jesus is God. He's at work in him. Sort of like God was in Jesus reconciling the world. A, That's another way a, to put it. A strong identification, not quite a one-to-one identification. Jesus is the person God, it's, but yeah, it's not but, an but also statement. non-ontological statement, yeah, but yeah. not also just like a Jesus was divine, but something more like what Jesus was doing was what God was doing or something. It's yeah. a hard thing to say. I think that's it. But again, well, I, me, I don't think that's a New Testament usage of theos. I mean, when somebody's doing God's work, I mean, you can say, look, there God is, there God is at work, God's in him and so on. But it's not a normal New Testament usage to, you know, point to Jesus or John or Paul and just say, that is God. John is God. Paul is God. Or here, you know, God is Paul. But it's not hot theos. So it makes you... You say, yeah. oh, no, he's not really talking about a one-to-one equivalent, right? These are Trinitarian arguments, Bill. Uh, well, we know uh, that this, this, this we're idea not the first ones to okay. argue about the, the Hang indefinite on. article. I, no. got, I got several things to say here. The difference between theos and hotheos is very easily overblown. People like Philo and Origen insist that there's a big deal of a difference between saying the god, hotheos, and just theos, which we, sometimes we would translate as a god. But if you actually look at how these are used, particularly in John's gospel, very often God without the the, just theos, it refers to the one God, the Father. Um, So there's not a big difference. To put the the there is a way to emphasize the uniqueness of God, but very often they're just interchangeable. I agree that this is a reference to the Father, right, in 1-1-C. I agree it is. It's referring to God. But you think the word refers to the man Jesus, and Jesus is not the Father. Because Jesus is the word of God. That's how I can see this is, in in the sense of, again, I'll go to Hebrews 1. This is God's communicating to us. God spoke to us in many and various ways to our fathers through the prophets. But now he spoke to us. He has spoken to us through a son. By the way, this is a very important aspect of the prologue of John's gospel that people usually don't talk about. It's almost all in past tense, really with the exception of the light shines in the darkness and darkness has not only covered. And I see a reason for that. I see John looks at the physical, historical life of Jesus on the earth as a statement of God that, yes, this life is in him. And that's why it's very important to see that this is a person that's being talked about when it says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He bore witness to the light and that this, this one in him was life and the life was the light of men. Now, there, there's references throughout the Gospel of John that tie in. I think we could go through every single verse in the prologue and find the same language that's referred to here about who I believe is a person in the prologue and find it in the Gospel. You don't have to look very far to see that Jesus is the light, for instance. We've really got to ignore things, verses like this. Like in, we haven't gotten to John 1, 4, well, 5. Can we, I want to say a couple more things about the word was God. Sure. I don't see how what you're suggesting is a normal usage of God in the New Testament, the word theos. My reading is very straightforward. It's just this thing I'm calling the word, actually, that's just God himself. 
right? Imagine that you had a friend who's a feminist and she's looking for uh, female interests in the Bible and she turns uh, to the book of Proverbs and she's like, oh God, hmm, I'm, I am conflicted about God. But you know, this wisdom lady, I really like her. Look at, she does all this amazing stuff. She's been around forever. Um, she's more valuable than gold or silver. Um, <laughs> you'll say that's just God, you know, what wisdom does in creating the world. That's just what God does. Right. And by the way, the degree of personification doesn't matter because you can personify, you can personify as vividly as you please. And that doesn't suggest that it's not personification. And this is a feature of the wisdom literature with wisdom slash the word. So right, Proverbs 8.30, when he, God, marked out the foundations of the earth, then I, wisdom, was beside him like a master worker. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. So very vivid personification. It doesn't suggest that it's literally a person. It, what it suggests is that wisdom is being thought of as a person there. Mm-hmm. That's just personification. So, so yeah, Bill, what do you what do you have to say about about wisdom? Two things that I think are very important. One, there's no mention of wisdom at all in the prologue of John's Gospel. There's no mention of wisdom at all in the creation account of Genesis. I don't think the word wisdom is mentioned in the book of Genesis either. So, I don't think it's the best way to look at the some extra biblical literature and kind of superimpose that onto John's gospel. Rather, I think it's better to look at what he's the how he's using the words here in his prologue, in the book itself, in his other literature and say, you know what? That's the best way to understand this. Right? To bring in a, a concept like uh, wisdom personas. Wisdom is feminine, right? It's it's she. It's kind of a foreign thing to this gospel, I I, I would suggest. But Bill, extra biblical or not, this is part of the background. And a matter of fact, a lot of Trinitarian commenters go on at great length about this, that they think that there's a big background here of wisdom literature in these books. What we have to ask is not just what can explicate this chapter in the Bible. We have to ask, what could the original audience have heard? What could they have been able to figure out? And I think they could have figured out my reading but I'm thinking that they couldn't have figured out yours just based on what's there. Well, I think I mean, it's less likely. What I like about Bill's reading is that I agree with what you're saying, Bill, that there are a lot of these images before verse 14 that seem to really strongly connect with Jesus. Like being the light, being the life, you know, uh, believing in his name, right? That's like, but to all who received him, who believed in his, his name, name, he gave the power to become children of God. Those sorts of things seem very Jesus-y. And this is before the word becoming flesh. The thing that I still like about Dale is your reading, Bill, has a very strong connection between Jesus and God in that verse one that gives me a little bit of uh, discomfort, if I'm honest. I'm not sure what you mean. It sounds pretty darn close to just saying that Jesus is God in a perhaps a more direct sense than I'm not sure that I think is correct. But I'm not quite sure how to integrate your two things to have Jesus be so connected with the word before verse 14, but then to have the word was God, you know, uh, at the end of verse one there, one C. 
Well, let's not forget that Jesus is called the Word of God in the book of Revelation. And to answer your question, why isn't he called that in the Gospel of John? I think the answer is basically this. Jesus says many, many times, the words that I speak are not my words. They're the Father's words. So in that way, again, it is God. It's the Father speaking. He has the Word of God in him, dwelling in him. Right. Absolutely. So that, that's why, I mean, you can just do a word search on Logos yes. in the book of John. You're going to see it's going to pop up over and over again. Yes. It's the Father's words. There are others, right? The people believe because of the Samaritan woman's word. And by the way, this is another very important reason why I think we should understand the word Logos. It's not this abstract idea of wisdom or a plan or purpose. I guess, Dale, probably didn't say it was a plan or purpose. I think I've heard other people say that. But when you look at what it means in the Gospel of John, it means really a communication, something somebody said. The Word of God, it's the statement. It's eternal life. It's the plan of God for redemption. A friend of ours recently wrote a blog post, and I agree with him. There is a certain aspect in which this Word, this life that God has promised to human beings in the age to come, in the in the kingdom. So it's the it's the statement. It's the what came out from the person. It's not really a plan or a, you know, kind of a pre-drawn idea and so forth. Okay, yeah, there's something there, but it's really God is communicating and he's declaring, he's making a promise in Jesus the Messiah. And that's why I can see that this, you can say the word was God. Jesus Christ is God at work. Sam, if I gave the impression I think Jesus is God, totally not, right? That's not what I'm saying. Go back to what Hebrews says. Many ways has God spoken to us, our fathers in the past, but in these days he has spoken to us through a person, right? Right. But it seems like if that's what John were trying to say, he could have said, and God was in the word or or something, something, an extra level of separation there. My father, my father's in me, like, like happens several times later in the book. I mean, if you look at, if you, if you look at Lagos after John 1, or the related term rhema, it means basically like message and teaching, right? Mm -hmm. So let me give you two examples. John 14, starting in verse 23, Jesus says, Those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them, and he will come to them and make our home with them. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. So it's God's word, but it's also Jesus' word. Later on, he talks about it as the disciples' word. It's the same word that's getting passed along, right? Right. John twelve forty eight. The one who rejects me and does not mis- receive my word has a judge. On that last day, the word that I have spoken will serve as judge. Okay, notice Jesus is personifying the word, which is a natural thing to do. I'm not going to judge you. The word is. Now, it's not the kind of vivid personification that you see, you know, in Proverbs 8 and things like that. It's just a little quickie. Mm -hmm. The character never comes back. But again, I would expect him to, you know, just like he has Jesus claim every other high title, you know, the way, the truth, the life, the light of the world. So just come out in one chapter and say, hey, guys, I am the word of God. It would make sense even, but Mm -hmm. the author doesn't do that. So I I think he does say that. Over and over again, he says that Jesus is speaking the words of God, right? So Mm -hmm. the word of God is Jesus. The word of God is in Jesus. 
And as John, the author, writes this, he sees this whole, he's, he's writing when he knows Jesus has been resurrected from the dead and is at God's right hand. That's what he really wraps up to the prologue in, in verse 18. This one is at the right hand of God. So he sees in this one a statement of God, the declaration of God, that there is redemption for mankind, that there is hope for mankind, that there's life everlasting for mankind in this one Jesus. From the way I look at it, I still think that it's best to read this prologue as seeing a person. And part of that reason is, is because of all of these parallels of things that John says in his prologue that we find in the gospel itself. And Sam, you started to mention one, for instance, in verse 12, to all who received him, to all those who believed in his name. So we have those same kinds of statements again in the gospel. John 3.18, mm -hmm. whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There's the word, that name, believing in the name. The gospel's climax statement, 2031 of the gospel of John. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. So in verse 12, that is talking about Jesus because we can see the parallels in the gospel itself. And I think you can do the same thing with just about every single one of these verses in the Gospel of John. They're not really a difficulty for my view, though, because since God's Word is dwelling among us as Jesus, then the terms that apply to God's Word are going to apply to Jesus. It strikes me that this isn't really going to settle the question. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I again press Bill regarding verse 10. I still would like to hear how, you, Bill, you understand verse 10. Okay, but if, let's get to it. Let's go to 9 first, okay? Okay. All right. 9 says that the true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. You have so many parallels in the Gospel of John to this idea of the true light that lightens every man was coming into the world. John mm -hmm. 3.19, this is judgment. That light has come into the world. So, Dale, if I understand you right, in 3.19 of the John's Gospel, you would say that refers to Jesus. But in the prologue, it's referring to the abstract idea of the, the Word of God. I don't think that's the best way to take it. I see John introducing the ministry of Jesus, and we have the statement, the language of who this one is right there in the prologue that matches up with verses. And this is not the only one. I just read one. Verses in the Gospel itself, John 8.12. Jesus spoke to them, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That relates as well back up there to verse 4 and 5 where he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
that light shines in the darkness and the darkness has no overcome it. Now, why is John using the words light and life? Yes, there is a glance back there to the Genesis creation, but he is saying that new life, that real created life that well, I shouldn't even use the created because it's a, it's a re recreation. It's a renewal of life. God is at work here in Jesus. But the point is you have the exact parallel for the prologue. This one is light. In him was life. It's very interesting. The, in him is life. That life was the light to men. What does that mean? Again, I, my friend that wrote his blog, I think he's onto something here. He said that the light is, it's like hope or expectation. And I think that that's, that's a good idea because in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's life. Remember, John, Genesis is about creation of life. And here's the renewal of life. Jesus in him is life. Okay, that's renewal. I should say that some people who take my type of interpretation, like Sir Anthony Buzzard, they do think that Jesus is now the subject starting in verse 10. So that's something that one has to keep in mind. One thing that you're bringing out is the temporal sequence moving through this passage. And I think that heavily favors my view. There shouldn't be as much sequence in your reading because the whole so, thing's about the beginning. The one It's about one time. It's about the beginning of Jesus's uh, ministry or something like that, the beginning of the new covenant era. I think well, we should go through the sequence in just a second because that, that's an important question. But I do want to, I, I want to hear Bill explain verse 10. Mm -hmm. He was in the world and the world came into being through him. And I believe world there isn't all things, it's, it's cosmos, right? Which well, is seemingly has a more materialistic connotation than simply all things or something like mm -hmm. that. But just remember in verses four, five, nine, Jesus is the light that has come into the world, that whoever believes in him may not remain in darkness. That's John 12, 46. That's not the, that's not the prologue. Sounds very much like the prologue. So to me, John is introducing in the prologue what he's going to talk about in the ministry of Jesus. Now, in verse 10, it's a verse that I think doesn't work for either the Trinitarian or the interpretation that Dale is using. I think part of the problem is the word cosmos. We get confused with it. We think of the cosmos as the created world and so forth. But I think that the cosmos here, it's maybe you could say it's civilization, but it may even again be specifically like we would use the terminology, the world of sports or maybe in Trinitarian world. Okay. What does that mean? The realm in the realm. So a word or, or kind of, be in the world, but not of the world, right? And their world seems to be culture and people, right? Not that's planets, another example. Planets right? and stars or something. Yes, that's another example. Now look at the order of these phrases. It starts out by saying he was in the world or the cosmos, and it's very interesting that, uh, as Dale mentioned, Anthony Buzzard now sees this as the person Jesus, and I think. It's pretty difficult not to see the person Jesus as this one that has come into the world. That's a phrase that's going to occur over and over again in the Gospel of John itself. But that's the first phrase. The second phrase is, the cosmos came to be through him. Now, when I was a Trinitarian, I read those backwards. I read it, the cosmos came to be through him, that is, he created the world, and then he was in the world. But notice, it's not that way. It's he was in the world, the cosmos, and the cosmos came to be through him. Now, what is that? Well, I'm going to suggest that it means everything we just talked about back in verse 3. 
everything that was came to be through him. And it's, again, it, especially it means the covenant people of God, the ones who will receive resurrection from the dead into the age to come. The cosmos, that, that world, that new world comes to be through him. Well, no, but it says the world did not know him. You don't want to pin that yes. on the new, the new believers, right? Um, no, the we're going to get to that one in just society. a second. Yeah, it says in, in the next phrase, then his own received him not. I would suggest that there's a parallel really in the next verse. You can see the parallel. The parallel is to verse 10 in verses 11 to 12, where he came to his own is parallel with the phrase, he was in the world. And then in, in verse, uh, let's see, is it verse 11 or 12, where it says his own received him not. Came Do you think own, it's... His own, his own received him not. Bill, the, the word cosmos is used three times in verse 10. It's the same one cosmos, right? Uh, yes. And also in verse 9, yeah, used there. That's, that's one of the difficulties, maybe, you could say, in, in my interpretation, because I do see a slight difference. Because he was in the world, I'm going to take that first one in verse 10 as being, you can maybe even say, the Jewish civilization, mm-hmm. the Jewish world, the world system. And then the second one, the world came to be through him. I do have to admit, I'm changing the world, the meaning of world there a little bit, to the world that's going to be created through Jesus, meaning the covenant people that are going to be born of him in verses uh, 12 mm-hmm. and 13. Okay, so I am changing that. So there's a you're right, there's a little bit of equivocation. I admit it there, but I still think it makes sense. And I tell you why, because I see it done in other places in the in the scripture. Any explanation of verse 10 probably uses one or more of the worlds in different ways. Even a more Trinitarian thing would say he was in the world, society. The world, rocks and and suns and planets came into being through him, right. yet the world, Greek, Jewish society didn't recognize him, right? So, Fair enough. So but, I think almost any reading will have to have perhaps some switching back and forth between alternative definitions of world. But why I hear you I'm saying, I'm not sure Bill, about that. But Sam, there's a deal killer here, which is that the meaning that Bill's reading needs is not a dictionary meaning of cosmos. Okay. I mean, yeah. I see it meaning four things. I'm looking at a lexicon, the universe or the world, some total of created things. In Jewish conception, the sum of the fierce surrounding nations. So it's kind of like the Gentile world, basically. The world apart from God, usually thought of as bad. And, and it mentions John as using it in that way. Sometimes it means the inhabited world. And then sometimes it means adornment. But I guess that's like, it's a very different use. So Dale, how do you understand verse 10? It abruptly switches back to the uh, masculine pronoun, so I think it's referring back to the word again. And uh, it was in the world, like it's available to people. The world, I take it, uh, it must mean like uh, all of the people in the world. He's, he's in Like the- wisdom could have been sought by anyone almost sort of thing? or Yeah, the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. God's word is getting rejected broadly. But then it makes it worse. He comes to his own, and they don't accept him either. This is yet another reference to previous literature. There's a theme of God's word, you know, trying to find a dwelling place among people and uh, can't find one. It goes back up to heaven sometimes. So it's like kind of wandering, trying to find acceptance and can't get it. 
So would you say this is something like the Old Testament prophets, sort of, again, kind of similar to Hebrews, but Old Testament prophets and the scriptures, you know, coming to the Jewish people, but them not always accepting it. And there's a strong theme in the New Testament of the prophets that were ignored and killed that came before Jesus. Yeah. And and again, it does sound like Jesus at the end of this paragraph, right? So I think he's saying, well, the kind of thing that happens with Jesus is what happens with God's word generally. He generally gets rejected, the word of God. And this is what happens to Jesus, even by God's own people, the people of the word. Mm-hmm. But of, not everybody rejects, of course, because if you receive the word of God, that just is to trust God. And now you're a child of God. Yeah, but verse right. says that believe in his name. Yeah, but that doesn't have to be the name of Jesus. To believe in the name of the Word, I think, is just, it's the Word that is the subject of this. To believe in the name of the Word is just the same thing as to trust God or accept God's Word. Yeah, but I think you're, again, ignoring the parallels in the rest of the Gospel that talk about believing in the name of Jesus. Look, um, the word world, it's got I'm not ignoring those. (sighs) That's why I said it sounds like Jesus. I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, right? But she'll have the light of life. How that's not connected to the prologue of John, it's Bill, those things don't decide between our views. Those things are compatible with my view just as well as yours. I don't think so, because, see, I'm saying that the prologue introduces the gospel of John. So that's why it's there. The prologue— I agree with that, yes. To begin by saying that this is about creation— it's just not in the Gospel of John, the Genesis creation. This is not about the, the recreation of matter. This is about the recreation of God's people through Jesus Christ, the resurrection from the dead. And we'll get to it eventually, but I, I think that has a really a, a strong historical base. The people that would hear this message would really uh, come. To- but Bill, I completely agree that it's introducing the Gospel and, and that Jesus is the real subject, which it's getting to. I just think he takes his sweet time getting there. It's exalting Jesus by saying that God's word, which we hear a lot about later in the book, God's word, which is in Jesus, is the very word by which God made all things. And it goes back to the very beginning. So it's glorifying Jesus by talking in very exalted terms about this word of God, which is in him. Mm, I I see a more direct connection. You know, back to verse 10, if we want to. Look at the word cosmos has kind of a wide range of meanings. It's it's usually it can be things like an orderly arrangement, a system, a government, the whole created order of the universe. But I do think in the book of John, there does seem to be more of a meaning of the Jewish nation, the people, and even you might say the the community of God. And that's why I say I have to equivocate a little bit because in the in the first mention here in verse 10 again, where he was in the world, I take that as he was in the Jewish polity, the Jewish system, the, you know what, I think even it could be Judea, but the Jewish people, and then it says the world came to be through him, that's where I have to equivocate a little bit, but I, I have a reason for it, and I was kind of getting to that, and I would say it's this, and I'll use an example from the book of John. For the Jewish people, one of the idioms that illustrates who they are is a vine. God took a vine from Egypt, and he planted it in the land. This is from the book of Psalms. And if you're connected with that vine, you have life and you produce fruit. So that's the Jewish people. And then along comes Jesus in this book, and he says, my father is the vine dresser. I am the vine. So he is taking the image of Israel being the called out community of God, the covenant people, and saying, yes, 
as being the ideal Israelite, the fulcrum of the called out people of God is Jesus. So it does make a shift there. And that's why I can say I'm comfortable with making a shift with the world came to be through him in the middle of verse 10, yet the world knew him not. See, but even that world knew him not is repeated again in the, the Gospel of John. Even John, the Baptist, he says in uh, this prologue, not the prologue, in chapter 1, he says in verse 26, among you stands one whom you do not know. Same idea. The world did not know him, whom you do not know. So that's how I understand this to be, that the world did not know him. And then you have the parallels to verse 10 in 11 and 12, where in verse 11, you have he came to his own. Okay, that's he was in the world, parallel with verse 10. And then his own people received him not. That's parallel with yet the world knew him not. The people received him not. And the parallel to the middle of verse 10 is, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. Those are the ones, the middle of verse 10, the world came to be through him. All right? That's the new community of God. Yeah, I don't think cosmos means the Jews, and I don't think 11 is saying the same thing as 10 in different terms. Well, I think it's a, it's a fair way to look at it. Uh, and because, again, I see all of these things happening in the gospel itself, where he's coming into the world, believing in his name, not believing his name. You receive him, you have the power or the authority be, to become born of God. Right, but if, if the word is God, which we've been explicitly told, then to believe in the name of the word, word is just to believe in the name of God, right? I think there's mm -hmm. some overlap, but I think there's some specific description as well in the book of John, as in John, we read it in John 20, 31. These things are written so that you might have life and life that you have by believing that Jesus in his, is, is the Christ, that you believe in his name. Okay, this, the idea of believing in the name of Jesus in the Son of God is in the gospel itself. But I do, I agree there's some overlap. Right, and we haven't named Jesus by that point either. When the Trinity's podcast returns, the word became, or maybe just was, flesh. So let's talk about the doozy of all verses, verse 14, and then we'll talk about how in the world we imagine this sequence coming together. So I feel like in Dale's view, which is the view that I mostly hold, you know, the word becomes flesh. It's sort of like this kind of allegorical transformation or anointing. Do you want to maybe go into a little bit more detail on that, Dale? And then I'm very curious to hear what, what Bill thinks that means. Basically, I think that there are strong wisdom literature parallels for verse 14. So in the book called Baruch, chapter 3, wisdom basically, or the Torah, which is kind of equating the two, comes to earth and lives with humans. So it says, uh, afterward, 
Uh, she appeared on earth and lived with humankind. She is the book of the commandments of God, the law that endures forever. So God's wisdom becomes embooked, basically. Also, you have it in, um, you have God's word leaping down from heaven like a warrior in uh, one famous passage. Wisdom 18, your all-powerful word leapt down from heaven. There's another parallel, if I can find it. I mean, th this type of pseudo-incarnation, it's a literary device. It's not, it's not a literal transition in something where it gains a part or comes to have a body or something like that. It's just, it's something coming from heaven to earth, so to speak. But of course, we know that all blessings come from heaven to earth. That's a Jewish way of talking about it. It's not problematic on my reading. I think it's something that they would have been able to pick up on. Do you think that this is Jesus's birth, Jesus's baptism, not clear or something else? Um, it doesn't really have to be anything specific. It could be referring to his whole life. But the important part to me is I take Kai, the and there, in a temporal sense. Because at the beginning, you're talking about before creation. Then you move down, you're talking about the time of creation. Then you're talking about presumably like pre-special revelation times. Then you're talking about the era of the Jews. Now you're talking about the Jesus era. So I see it moving from earlier to later. The thing that makes it unclear is the weird sort of look ahead. The John the John. Baptist. Yeah. yeah. If you took that part out, I think hardly We have the logos yeah. traveling through kind of Old Testament and maybe even pre-Old Testament history. Yeah. And then finally in fullness... Here it is, and uh, Jesus is this word made flesh in a kind of new, special, full way. Yeah. I mean, look, it doesn't even mention the prophets. It's kind of downplaying them, other than John. Yeah, when he comes to his own, that's when God is sending prophets. But with those guys, you don't say the word became flesh and lived among us. Right? That's like right. a greater degree. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, Bill, what does the word made flesh mean, and, and when is that happening? Well, it's interesting you just used a kind of a different translation than uh, we've used before. Trinitarians seem to like the translation, the word became flesh, as if there was a transformation. Ironically, I don't think it's a good translation even for them, because the real Trinitarian theologians don't mm. say that the eternal son transformed they deny flesh, it was, a, was change. a change yep. right yeah. rather they should you know he took on a second nature these kinds of things mm -hmm. so they should be wary of this translation became i think the view that dale is suggesting also seems to describe a kind of transition or a transformation a change dare i say an incarnation of the abstract word plan purpose of god into a human being that there is a change, a transition, the word became, or in the sense of changing from one thing to another, it was the abstract word, but now is a human being. My view is to understand this word, it's the same word, agenito, was, like it is in John 1, 6 and 1, 17, right? John 1, 6, there was a man sent from God that was, is this word, same word, or 1, 17, uh, the grace and truth is in came through Jesus Christ, all these different translations as was, is simply to understand this as the word was, meaning the word, God's communication to man, his statement was a human being, flesh. The word was a human being, flesh. 
John is saying that God's word to us was a human being or that God spoke to us through a human being is God's word, the word of God, God's communication, his commandment, his promise was the human being. And you would maybe connect that to like first John four, like a sort of, and whoever denies that, that he came in the flesh sort of thing, sort of maybe an anti-gnostic warning label or something like that. I think you can maybe take it that way, but I think he's just saying, look at, we have God communicating to us through this one, Jesus Christ, the man, Jesus Christ. There wasn't a change from either a pre-incarnate person at the Trinitarian or a pre-incarnate abstract idea. Come back to Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. God has spoken to us in these last days by a son. And this is the name by which he is called, right? The book of Revelation 19:13, the word of God. And then this next phrase, we beheld his glory, glory of a unique one from the Father. To me, this is an example, like with the word logos, of how the Greek philosophers reading John's gospel wandered into myths. The biblical story, you ask, I think most Christian kids even, or for sure Jewish boys and girls, what's a biblical story about a father with a unique son? The answer is Abraham Abraham and Isaac. Okay, This word, I believe this word monogenes, one of a kind, it's the word yechid in Hebrew. Genesis 22, one of the strangest stories in the Bible. It's even so strange that Bob Dylan can write a song about it. God said to Abraham, take your son and sacrifice him. Take your son, Yechidcha, your unique, your only son. Now, it's not his only physical son. It doesn't mean, see, this is what I mean, how the Greek guys took this word and then, man, they wandered into myths. They got all kinds of weird ideas about this. You get to the point of eternal generation. What is going on? The Jewish people would laugh at these Gentiles and say, you have no clue what you're talking about, okay? So a Jew reading this, right away, he's going to think of the story of Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham goes to sacrifice his son, but God intervenes and says, no, uh-uh, don't do it. And that Abraham, Abraham already told his son, God will provide the say. He will provide the lamb. And behold, right? The word is in Genesis account. Behold, there's a ram stuck in the thicket. Okay, there it is. What does John the Baptist come along and say? Behold the Lamb of God. So we're connecting the biblical account of the story of Abraham and Isaac with Jesus and God. God has a son, and he gives his only son. And in this case, he dies. Now, it's very interesting to see the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 17 and 19. He uses the same word, this unique son. Abraham was tested. He was going to offer up Isaac. He had received the promises, was ready to offer up his son. But then it's it, the word is his only son, the same word, monogenes son. Now, how does the book of Hebrews interpret it? He considered, that is Abraham considered, that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which figur- figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So we're to see in the book of John, this prologue, by the way, I think you can do the same thing. Just like John, when you read the book of Revelation, If we knew enough, and this is why I keep saying, folks, we need 
the Jews. If you're listening to me, we need the Jews, not the, we, the Messianic ones. They're basically Baptist and Assemblies of God. They're influenced by Western thinking, just like all the rest of the world is. But I still think we need the Jews. Let a Jew sit down and read this, and they're going to get insights to this stuff that we don't know about. Just like when you read the book of Revelation, there's all these allusions to the Old Testament. I'll guarantee you they're in the, the prologue of the Gospel of John. I don't see them so well. We don't see them so well because we're Gentiles and we've been blinded by this all this kind of speculation of monogenes, eternal generation of the sun and all this stuff. And well, yeah, we agree about that. I think we might get, gain a little off topic here. Um, but no, you see what I'm saying? The same thing that was done with Logos. There's no Logos in the Genesis account. When you read this story, you say, wow, this is God has a son. Right? So we know his the, son yeah, is a human being. The logos is in the wisdom literature. It's another name for wisdom in some of that stuff. It's so not in the book of Genesis. We're we're coming up on about uh, 10, 15 minutes left. Mm-hmm. And I want to give you guys maybe a chance to sort of um I don't know, say anything that you feel like you haven't said yet, or perhaps ask each other um more direct questions that we haven't addressed. Well, I wanted to make a couple of points. One is, I mean, he brought up Hebrews 11, right? Verse 3, by faith we understand the worlds were prepared by the word of God, which of course, that's just God, right? Whatever the word does is just what God does. It's not somebody else, like it says here at the top. Can you read this sentence again real quick? Hebrews 11, 3, yeah, what by say? faith we understand the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what uh-huh. is seen was made from things that are not visible. That's a Genesis creation reference. Uh, it's the word ages. It's, it's the word ages. ages. Yeah, it's, a, it's aeons. Yeah. yeah, it's plural. See, I think all of the of Hebrews chapter 11, it's talking about people that had faith in what God promised to do and what he would do in the future. Just read through it and you can see. Abraham, God was told, go to a land, never seen it before, he goes. Believed in faith. It's always about things that happen in the future. So I think Hebrews, the whole, all of Hebrews, and, and starting out with the first few verses, is talking about the ages to come. People have faith that God is going to bring the ages to come. It's the word ages. 11 is not about the ages to come. It's talking about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham. And they all had faith in the, in the word of God of things that would happen in the future. Bill, I think you're saying this is not a Genesis creation reference. I don't know. I just think it obviously is in 11.3. I don't think it is. I I think chapter one is about new creation, but that's another argument. Yeah, maybe we should focus back on on John 1 for the the time left. About John 1, nothing about my position requires that we translate agenito as create, or even made. If you just translate that as was or were or something like that, or came to be, that's all good. I don't insist on the word becoming flesh. It doesn't really matter. I see the same sequence, and that's your sequence right there. And the word was flesh and lived among us. The point is not about a transition in the word, per se, right? It's just where we've now dropping, on my understanding, we're dropping the personification and we're switching the subject now to the man. I just had something of a realization, Bill, would you say that the the word of God predates Jesus's birth? Well, of course, the word of God came to the prophets, right? Okay. Have, that's the main mm-hmm. place that the devar comes. That's why I said there's not like a one-to-one equivalence between the word of God and Jesus. The apostles preached the word of God. I think it involves who Jesus was, but it also is what God promises through him. It's the whole message of 
what God is communicating to us through Jesus. His communication to us now is in the man, Jesus Christ. That's Hebrews chapter 1. That's what he's saying in John 1, 1. I think you're talking about it's not a one-to-one equivalence because you think that the term in this passage, the word is referring to Jesus. And then when it says it's he's God, that can't just be a straightforward meaning. But I mean, in the rest of the book, we know what the relation is between God's word and Jesus. God gave his word to Jesus. God's word is in him. Jesus is giving it to us. So now it's our message too. Sorry. Who spoke God's word? Who spoke it? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, Jesus speaks it, but God spoke it and his disciples speak it because he talks about those who will believe your word. I agree. But mainly God has spoken to us through Jesus. Maybe there's one thing I didn't really get to say. And that's, you know, we've kind of mentioned that how the Jewish or the first century readers uh, would accept this book. Let me say this. Today, there are two reasons, main reasons, there are others, but there are two two reasons why Jews would say Jesus is not Messiah. The first reason, Messiah is not God, it's not divine. And they're absolutely right about that. So if you're telling me that the New Testament says that Jesus is God, they're wrong. It's wrong. I don't can't accept that. The second reason, and you'll hear this from about the third day after Jesus was put on the cross and into the Middle Ages, there's a big debate by a Jewish rabbi called the Ramban with a Catholic priest. And this was his main point he makes. You can listen to the modern Jewish rabbi speak. The other main reason of the fact, other than the fact that the Messiah is not divine or God is this. You guys know? Well, that they wouldn't say they could have been crucified or something like that, or died perhaps even. Related to it. It's related, but it's it's this. When Messiah comes, he brings in the kingdom. And the kingdom means resurrection. It means renewal. It means no more sickness, no more war, no more dying, no more injustice. Jewish people gather back into the land, as well as another aspect. Now, when John writes his book in the somewhat probably decades after the time of Jesus, it's hard to know exactly when, but it's in the first century. By the time John writes it, it's been years since this man was on the earth and crucified by the Romans. That's why I say it's related to him being crucified. And even the author of the book is probably either dead or about to die. Remember in the last part of the book, it says, Peter asked, what about this guy? And the, the writer says, I didn't say that he would remain until I come back. Mm-hmm. What's that to you? You follow me. The implication is that even John is about to die. So he is writing this book. Decades have passed since Jesus was on the earth. There's still war. There's still pain. There's still suffering. There's still sickness. There's still the lame. There's still the blind. Hey, didn't the prophets tell us that the blind would see and the lame would be raised when Messiah comes? How could Jesus be Messiah? We still have all these things. John is saying, I'm writing you these things because in Jesus is that new creation. Water changed to wine. That's a symbol of the age to come. A lame man getting legs to walk on. That's a symbol of the age to come. The blind man seeing. That's a symbol of the age to come. The resurrection from the dead is the ultimate symbol of the age to come. The ultimate symbol of, here it is, the new creation. John is telling us it's in Jesus. That's it. And a Jewish person 
and not only Jew, but a Gentile that would know about the hope of Israel, as Paul calls it. What's the hope of Israel? The resurrection from the dead in life in the kingdom. The hope of Israel. They read this and they say, oh, he is writing us because Jesus' life is evidence that in him we've got life in the age to come. So it's a very it, it fits well into the context. And you can you can Google the gospel of John in the new creation. And the Trinitarian world, again, we'll use that word, is seeing this. You've got all kinds of articles on it that they see in the miracles of Jesus, evidence of the new creation. They see in the words of Jesus. Remember what they did when they came to Jesus in John chapter 10? Tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, if you don't believe my words, look at my works. The works that Jesus did, like John said, these are written so that you may know that Jesus is the Messiah. And that believing in him, you'd have life in the age to come. It's an encouragement that even though this time is passing and we haven't seen the this new age to come yet, we got a taste of it. It's a down payment. It's like a guarantee that that life is in Jesus the Messiah, that that new creation is in Jesus the Messiah. So that's why I think I would say take a look at this prologue. In the beginning, that phrase is a reference, yeah, alluding to creation, but John is telling his folks, you want life in that age to come, the new creation, the new beginning? Look, at Jesus is called in other places in the New Testament, the beginning. He is the beginning, Colossians 1.15. Revelation, what is it, 3.14. He is the beginning of God's creation. That's it. That's what John is telling us. This is the start. Get a, don't, don't give up. Don't, you know, don't you know, go back to Judaism or all this oppression, all this war. Okay, so it is. But it's there. We got a taste. The Jews have a saying, Dayenu. It's enough for us. If God had just done that one thing, that would be enough. We'd believe. That's what they're saying with Jesus. Look at, look at all that Jesus did. You've mm-hmm. got enough evidence that that new creation is through him. You have that cultural context. Okay, you not only have the literary context, the beginning and how it's used in John's gospel, and we didn't even look so much at how it's used in the rest of the, the gospels. Every single one of the gospels starts out with a beginning. Right. Mm -hmm. Mark's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Matthew, the Genesis, the beginning of Jesus, the Messiah. Luke, I'm telling you things that happened from the beginning, the concerning the word, the word of life. So it's there. I really think this is John describing. We got the new beginning in Jesus Christ. Okay, Dale, do you have any kind of uh, thoughts that you want to share before we come to a close? Yeah, I mean, I wish Bill was right. We agree that there is no additional Son of God to the man. The Son of God in the New Testament is the man, Christ Jesus. And so this Amen. idea that there is a, you know, eternal divine Son of God, again, this doesn't say anything about being eternal. It just says that this word, whatever it was, is there in the beginning, whenever that was. Nothing about timelessness here, or even endlessly long existence or anything like that. It's just whenever what this beginning we're talking about happened, the word was at that same time. And maybe didn't just start to be, but had already been. It's just that I find too many difficulties, right? You, the author can't expect the hearers who are sitting in a house church in the year 85 or 95 hearing this book. He can't expect them to have already scrutinized all the usage of, you know, beginning in John. It is a relevant point that other gospels like Mark start off NRK and it means what Bill says it means. But to me, it's just pushing too many creation buttons by way of wisdom literature. As far as I know, in ancient times, admittedly, our evidence is sparse. 
But as far as I know, in ancient times, everybody took this to be about the Genesis creation. And then some of them thought that this God, which the word is, they thought that's the same God as was mentioned before. And some thought that this God who the word is, is is a second God, another God, a lesser God. So the Logos theorists thought that the word was a lesser second deity. I disagree with them. And some of their monarchian opponents said, no, when you're talking about the word of God here, it says God was the word. So it's not somebody else. If you want to get literal about it, which is kind of missing the point, I suppose, it's going to be like a divine attribute or action or something. When you get down to it, it's just God himself. And I think they appealed to the verse where Jesus says, it's the father in me who's doing his works. Like, yeah, that's the word. That's the deity that's in Jesus. It's just God. I would like Bill to be right. I've dug pretty hard to try to make this work for me, but I just think the audience would have gone in this other direction based on the things that I've mentioned. And so I want to say the author is competent and either way, uh, John is going to be rolling over in his grave, whether Bill's right or I am right, right? Because the Logos theorists screwed everything up, according to me, and Bill makes them the villain of his story as well. Because when he says these Greeks came in, I think that's in this context, he's, he's talking about the Logos theorists. You can't put that on John. He doesn't know about Justin Martyr and the people after him. And so in the Jewish context, although I'm not so willing to point the finger at the Greeks and think about the Jews as if they're some kind of pure people, right? The whole New Testament's in Greek. There's lots of Hellenistic influence. He uses the term Logos. John, of all the Gospels, seems to go out of its way to explain things that a Gentile might not know that a Jewish person would. Like, oh, this word means this, by the way. Oh, the Jews don't like Samaritans, by the way. Mm -hmm. And stuff that, and so to assume, I don't know, whether or not this is written to Gentiles or very Hellenized Jews or pretty Jewish Jews, it's hard hard to see. Commenters will speculate that possibly the word Logos was chosen because the author knew that that would sound good to a Gentile because it was a word that the philosophers tossed around a lot in different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, I think we should respect each other's time, I guess, and bring this to a close. I'm not sure if we reached any firm conclusions, but I think we, we got down in the weeds pretty well. And I think we, we left a lot for listeners to think about and wrestle with. And, and maybe we might have to come back again sometime to tie this all together. But for now, uh, I want to thank both of you for coming on. Thanks for having us, Sam. Thank you, Bill, for a friendly argument. I always like a friendly argument about important things. Thanks a lot. It's been good. Good to think yeah. about it. And I think we'll stir up a little bit more conversation about it and get people to dig in a little deeper. Yeah, I appreciate this. I, mean, I still have more questions than answers on, on this passage, if I'm honest. Well, you know, honestly, it's the Trinitarians that have the hardest time. Once they realize that they can't import fourth century notions into this first century book, yeah. then all of a sudden everything becomes hard. I can imagine a certain kind of Aryan-ish logos theorist that it could actually make a pretty good move of things and not have... Like somewhere right in between you guys, you could imagine someone who is more comfortable with the word being God and more comfortable with the word being Jesus kind of uh, being kind of happy in there. 
yeah, if you quit worrying about an eternal being or a pre-existent being, if you quit worrying about how that can be a man, you can get yourself into the, oh, it's another God. It's a mm-hmm. God that was with God. One thing I will say is I have had a conversation or two with people, Trinitarians, and my view gets them to think a little bit. It, it throws them off balance. I found that if you try to tell a person that this is not describing Jesus in the prologue, they, they just don't accept it. Because for the reason I kind of explained, they see, hey, Jesus is the light, right? John came to testify to the light. They see, right? they, they see a person there. They see it's Jesus. So I found that it's pretty difficult to, I have to say thank you to the understanding that uh, Dale has and uh, Anthony has and so forth to understand that there's not another person creating. Okay, that, uh, that was very helpful. But when I started to talk with people with that understanding, I was always getting stuck. But I tell you, when I got this understanding of, hey, this is about a new creation, throws people off, partly because they haven't heard it before and partly because they start to get a little, whoa, Jesus is called the, the beginning of God's creation in Colossians and in Revelation. Mm-hmm. You know, what is this? Maybe he, maybe he's right kind of thing. And it throws them off a little bit. So that's another reason I like it. I, like I say, I, I think it's right and I'm confident presenting it. And as you can see, I'm not afraid to talk about any of the verses. You know, I still mm-hmm. have more to learn in this kind of thing. But uh, I like it. They haven't heard it yet. Most yeah. Trinitarians haven't yeah. heard this. That's what I felt when you first started presenting. I, mean, I felt a little bit turned upside down. I'm like, oh, what is this? But well, actually, you know, kind of. It, it certainly yeah. does make it harmonize with, say, Colossians and Hebrews pretty well. If we just say, all things that connect Jesus with creating any way whatsoever are new creation. That, yeah, that does, that'd be nice. that does, yep. yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of good points there, right? Uh, just because there's creation language doesn't mean it has to be the original creation because that's just what you do. You reappropriate the old creation language for the new creation. So you're going to, it's going to sound the same or similar. Mm-hmm. Hey man, you're now you're That's, preaching for me, Dale. Why didn't I say that? Dale? Well, I mean, this is. <laughs> I'm what starting I, to regret turning off the recording. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it okay, definitely you guys. stirs the pot. So I'm I'm thankful for the argument. This week's thinking music has been the track "Poolside" by Little Glass Men. As always, on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, I've got a link where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinities podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement.
for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.